The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. When you get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can hear the Word of God and read along as well. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the Solomon is trying to find the meaning and the purpose of life uh, without God under the sun. And again, with unlimited resources, he heads out on this search. There's no limitation for him. And it's recorded in the Bible because he's doing that on behalf of all of us so that none of us would look and say, oh, if only I had a thousand wives then I would be satisfied sexually. Or if only I had ruled over a kingdom where silver became as common and as useless as uh, rocks in comparison to gold, then I would have discovered the meaning of life. Solomon had all of that and more education, more PhDs for his time than anybody could ever dream of. And so he is on that search and... This book is a record of trying to find the meaning and the purpose of life independent of God. And his uh, result of his search is that he found that all of life, no matter where he looked, it was emptiness and frustration of spirit. And he began uh, the book by talking about how man is comparatively insignificant compared to the grand scheme of uh, creation and the cycle of nature and then the vanity of human wisdom. It just increases our sorrow and our grief in life. Knowing uh, only knowing more just produces that without a God to process all of that with. The vanity of making pleasure and partying the master passion of our lives. Uh, the vanity of amassing wealth and possessions, then the, that he lamented that the living under the sun provided no answer for the problem of death, which he was something that he struggled with and everyone ought to struggle with. Then in chapter 3, Solomon sinks into fatalism, and in that chapter as well, under the sun, he can't find any answer for why the world is the way that it is, why it's marked by crime and sin and iniquity, why human beings treat one another the way that they do. He's got no understanding of the fall of man, so he can't even begin to understand man. And then as we headed into chapter 4, the vanity of working hard and skillfully under the sun where God isn't a dominant influence within the culture because all it does is produce jealousy in other people's hearts who are, uh, in, that are, are lazy and unwilling to be skilled or to work hard. And then he talked finally about the vanity of overworking uh, to be rich. It's one thing to have to work long hours, work hard hours in order to keep food on the table and a roof over our head and pay the car insurance and all those kind of things. But he was talking about working hard solely for the purpose of amassing more and more and more under the uh, just 
love of money. And so that brings us now tonight to verse 13 of chapter 4. And verse 13, in verse 13, this section, Solomon speaks of the emptiness of living for popularity. And I'll tell you, does our culture need uh, to understand uh, that? So many people are desperate to be famous, desperate to be noticed. How many um, of these shows can you have that just watch people live their lives and the outrageous things that they will do to have their 15 minutes of fame? Well, people aren't satisfied with 15 minutes of fame. They want more than that. I was listening to one guy and he was talking about a friend of his and um, that ended up getting on, he got on the Letterman show. From, I guess there's goofy things that you can do that it will get you on Letterman's show. And this guy got on the show, uh, national television, because he could stop a ceiling fan with his tongue. <laughs> Boy, and you thought you had talent. So... That's the claim to fame in all of life. You know, look at our friend is on television and just able to stop a ceiling fan with, you know, his tongue. But anyway, this is all this goofiness stuff that, uh, that goes on and really so much of it is uh, very, very sad. Solomon writes and he says, Better is a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. In other words, he's fallen asleep on the job. He's not on the ball anymore. For he comes, this young man comes out of prison to be king. Although he was born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. And they were with the second youth who stands in his place. And there was no end of all the people over whom he became king, was made king, yet... After, uh, those who came afterward uh, will not rejoice even in him. Surely this also is grasp, uh, vanity and grasping at the wind. And so Solomon observed that fame and prestige are uh, very fleeting. Everyone, almost everyone is forgotten, except for maybe what, how many, 100, 200, 500 people in human history Everyone else is forgotten within one and at the most two uh, generations. And he uses the example here of a young man who becomes a king, comes out of a background of poverty and uh, imprisonment. He replaces this old king who is no longer teachable. Again, he's no longer on top of things, on the ball. And it's really the ultimate feel-good story. We love feel-good stories. We like the underdog to come from nowhere and to win the race or come from nowhere and to become uh, the king. And so this rags-to-riches story is laid out here, and it's the kind of story that people naturally gravitate to. This young king, he becomes wildly popular. He's beloved by everyone, as the passage describes to us. But the idea is it goes on. Solomon talks about the fact that no matter how great a king he is, there will be a generation that will follow the generation that put him into power, and they will want something new. 
and they will one day long for even this man who used to be a young man, they will long for the day of his departure, even the day of his death, so that they can get on with the next thing. And so everyone really is forgotten within one generation or the most two. Even the greatest of kings, Solomon is saying, forgotten in a generation or two, and the rest of us were forgotten even sooner. I mean, how many of us can remember who won this year's uh, NCAA basketball tournament? And it just happened this year, and we've already forgotten in the blur of information. How many of us can remember, if we learned it at all, who won the men's and women's titles at the Australian Open in tennis uh, this year? And you just go right down the line what people give their whole lives to to accomplish, and they're quickly forgotten, very quickly forgotten in life. And so what happens... Solomon says, to the first king, ultimately happens to you, it happens to everyone. And the reason that it happens to everyone is that people are fickle. They really are. And there's a lot of nice people. There's a lot of wonderful people, of course, in uh, in the world. But people, by and large, they do get bored easily. Uh, They get fickle. They want to move on to the next thing, the next hero, the next feel-good story. And uh, so somebody else becomes popular. I think about Winston Churchill, who guided uh, England through certainly one of the most challenging chapters in their entire history uh, during World War II. And as soon as the war was over, they wanted something different and someone different. And they voted in a completely different government Uh, And he was defeated in that election. It's just the way that it is. No matter what you accomplish, how great what you accomplish is, it's just under the sun. This is the way that people are. Think about King David. He certainly knew fickleness among people, didn't he? People, he'd rescue and save an entire village from destruction. And then they would turn on him when they had a chance to gain Saul's uh, favor in his attempt to hunt David down and to kill him. And you think about the Apostle Paul. And late in his life, he spoke about the fact that when he was uh, being judged by Rome, that he said, listen, nobody stood with me. Nobody stood with me. I was alone in that courtroom. There wasn't a single person to bear witness to my innocence or bear witness to my character. You think about that. The Apostle Paul is our hero today. I mean, not like Jesus is to us, of course, because he's in the category of one. But it's hard for us to believe that Paul would stand alone in any courtroom and because nobody would stand with him. And yet that's exactly... Uh, what uh, what happened to him in his ministry. And that's why it's so important in our service to the Lord. It is great to have people who appreciate us in what we do and encourage us, but that can never be the thing that keeps us going. That can never be the thing that we draw off. If it happens, it's icing on the cake. But the main thing in all of it is that the Lord is faithful to us. Jesus said in the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so he is. 
he spoke when Peter, I mean, when Paul spoke about his defense and no one standing with him in 2 Timothy, writes that at the end of his life, he says in that passage, he said, but the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. So popularity, it comes and goes. One year you can be the in person and then the next year the out person. And the, the culture is more fickle than it's ever been in my lifetime. But the Lord will never, ever be fickle. But that's just the way that it is. So the folly of living our life for the applause of man because it will dry up instantly as soon as they're fascinated by something else. But the Lord will never, ever do that to us. Then he moves on in chapter 5 here to talk about the vanity of external religion, the vanity of mindless, heartless religion. He says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. In other words, talking, for they do not know uh, that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart, uh, let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. And therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not, and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of the Lord that it was an error. I didn't mean to make this vow. I, you know, I, it, 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 I take it all back. For why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words... There is also vanity, but fear God. So the context of this apparently is Solomon. He went to the temple and uh, that he was instrumental in building to watch people go into the temple in order to worship the Lord. And while he was watching people coming and going, the activities surrounding the temple, he doubtless saw many people who were sincere and devout in their worship of the Lord. But then he noticed there was another group there as well, those who were casual in their worship of the Lord no reverence at all for God. And so he describes them as being the proud and arrogant. Um, They walk into the room with the idea of being the most important person in the room. And they don't know that God is enthroned in heaven and we're nobody and nothing compared to him. But they don't have that kind of an understanding of God. They're still full of themselves. There's no humility in their lives. And so they walk into a church service like this or into a religious religious building, and in their mind, they're more important than the God that people have assembled together uh, to worship. And so they come in to compete with God for uh, people's uh, attention. And, And Solomon says, given the fact that they don't come into the room in order to hear and learn something, but rather to talk and to boast and make vows to God publicly that they have no intention of ever keeping at all, just made in order to impress others. So this is Solomon was seeing a fair amount of this. You remember that Solomon is a PK. 
He's not a pastor's kid, but he's a, pre, uh, but he's a psalmist's kid. He's a son of uh, David. So he's not walking with God at the moment, but it's a funny thing about people who've been raised in the church and they backslide and then we trust that they will come back later in life. But sometimes someone who's backslidden, where they've been raised in church, they know what the worship of God is supposed to be. They know what obedience looks like. Sometimes they're the most, in, you know, kind of intolerant critics of nonsense in other people's lives. When somebody says, I'm a Christian, and then they see inconsistencies related to that profession, I mean, they can be as hard as anyone on that. What are you talking about? I'm not walking with God right now, but I was raised in church, and I know that what you're doing right now is not Christianity, but something you've made up in your mind. And so Solomon really comes down hard on this insincere, heartless, man-centered worship that was going on in the building that was set aside for the worship uh, of the Lord. And he rebukes uh, that kind of person and all of this. His instruction is important here because he not only observes the hypocrisy and the inconsistency of this kind of religion, but he has something to say to that kind of person, and he warns in verses 2 and 3 against careless praying, the importance of not praying anything to God that we don't actually uh, mean. And the idea here is to profess a love for God, a devotion for God openly in a meeting there at the temple, and then not to mean it. It's called prayer lying. (laughs) He reminds them that God listens to prayers And it'd be better to just pray in a few words that are sincere rather than a bunch of words that are insincere and they're disconnected from the hearts. And so if our prayers don't mean anything to us, then they certainly aren't going to mean anything to God. And Jesus spoke about this very thing. Solomon, in this writing of Ecclesiastes, sometimes he's wrong in what he writes because he's leaving God out of the picture. But a lot of times he hits on something that is absolutely correct. And Jesus spoke about uh, sincerity and prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, and when you pray, speaking to us as Christians... He said, you shall not be like the hypocrites. So apparently there's a capacity for hypocrisy in our hearts related to this, or Jesus wouldn't have felt he needed to say it. He said, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you... When you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, don't use vainless repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. John Bunyan, who is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, which I understand is the, uh, uh, at least at one time, fairly recently, was the second most uh, published book in history after the Bible. But he wrote uh, in this very vein that Solomon is talking about. He said, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. 
And that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. If the words are not connected to a heart, then he says this is just empty religion and, and, it's, and it's useless. It's just uh, disrespectful toward the Lord. He warns in verses 4 and 6 against making a vow to God and then failing to keep it. Um, w- there's no necessity on our part as Christians to ever make vows to God. Even on, in the Old Testament, There wasn't a requirement to make a vow to God where you say, God, if you get me out of this situation, I swear I will do this for you, or I swear I will give this to you, or I will make this sacrifice for you. Um, That was never required, even under the law of Moses. Certainly not required in the New Testament. Because vows are an expression of self-confidence. And I've made the vow, and then now I'm saying in my own strength, I'm going to accomplish this vow. And by making vows, most of us are going to break the vows that we make, these spur-of-the-moment kind of mindless, heartless vows that we make just to get out of a pinch. And so the Bible says it's best not to make any uh, vow at all. The best way that we can bless God for how good he's been to us or he's pulled us out of a pinch is to obey his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. You don't have to make a whole bunch of vows and promises and then try and break your neck to keep all of them. Just obey my word and that will translate. I'll, I'll receive that as an expression of your love toward me. Jesus said about vows again in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But Jesus said, but I say to you, to us as Christians, do not swear at all. Don't make vows. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever is more than these uh, is from the evil one. In other words, more than just anything more than just saying something, uh, is, is adding a vow to that, I swear to God this or I swear to you, Lord, this. He says that this comes from the evil one. We're just setting ourselves up to fall and then to fall into uh, condemnation. As a result of that, when he talks there in verse 6 about the messenger of God, this would be the kind of thing where a person would make a vow at the temple and then the priest would hear it. And then later when it came time to bring the calf or to bring the oxen or to bring the money, he would then go to the priest and say, well, you know, I was kind of just kidding. I wasn't really serious and all of that. And uh, he made the vow by mistake. And so he tried to lie his way out of that. And Solomon says, don't do that with God because when you, when you do that, what you're saying is, I love my stuff more than God. And so don't be surprised if God then steps into your life and removes some of your stuff, what you would have given in the vow, plus a lot more uh, to get your attention and make you realize that you uh, love money more than you love God. And so in verse 7, Solomon likens these rash vows to futile or meaningless dreams. In other words, the vows are made and they're not really based in reality. It's all make-believe. And so Solomon teaches us here, he's looking for religion 
He's looking for meaning, life, meaning in, in life, purpose in life under the sun. He tries to find it in religion, uh, independent of God, and, and all religion that is separated from the worship of the God of the Bible is the worship. It's not worship of God at all. It just simply isn't. So it is false religion that people are engaged in. And, and he said, in those systems, there's no meaning or no satisfaction in those places. And it's good to realize that not all religion uh, is good. It's only good as it honors God, as it honors the God of the Bible, and, uh, and it's expressed in uh, worshiping him through an obedient life. Uh, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And here uh, she is, she's talking with him and all. And Jesus spoke to her and said, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is is seeking such to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So she was a religious woman. And she's asking about God and all of these kind of things. But she's also, at the time that she's talking with him, she to Jesus, she's a, a, engaged in religion, but she's living with a man outside of marriage. And so she's not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus informs her of the fact that what she is worshiping is wrong, that it, is, it isn't the worship of the true and the living God, and that God has to be worshiped not only with our mouths and lips in any old way that we want to, but it has to be done in a way that honors him, which means that it's consistent with the word of God. Solomon then uh, boy, is this contemporary in verse 8. Solomon then uh, learned of the inability of government to solve man's problems. Imagine that. He said, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, don't marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. And moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. And so Solomon, as he is looking at life under the sun, looking for um, how to fix the problems that he sees in people's lives under the sun, he sets his gaze upon uh, what would be uh, the most likely candidate of all to solve these problems under the sun, independent of God, and that is government. And he came to see that uh, not only is human government incapable of solving the problems of oppression and injustice and unrighteousness, as he writes here, but it's often the cause of oppression and injustice and unrighteousness within a nation. There are many nations in which the greatest enemy to justice and righteousness and fairness is not the fellow on the street corner or the neighbor living down the block, but it is government that is the obstacle uh, to that. It's because of the corruption within the system and among government officials. And so he describes this thing where 
You've got all these layers of government, and they exist in order to squeeze you at every level of, uh, of government. And he talks in verse 9 about the corruption uh, leading right up to the king, where uh, up to the top. And the idea is that you can work hard all your life and have it uh, stolen away from you uh, by a corrupt government and by corrupt government officials. And uh, I remember... Uh, 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 talking with my father, uh, just met him once, and uh, but he was a sculptor and he was a uh, furniture designer, interior design person, and he lived in Mexico City, and uh, he owned two foundries and was quite accomplished, and then uh, th- the Mexico was scheduled to host the. Uh, Summer Olympics, Mexico City. Some of us live, have been alive long enough to remember those. And what the Mexican government did was it simply went through the entire country and confiscated wealth from anyone who had it in order to build those athletic arenas to pull this kind of PR thing off for the whole world. And they stripped him of his two foundries and, and everything that they, they own, and they broke him as a result of of all of that. And so that kind of thing goes on all around the world, not just Mexico, but lots of places. And it can even happen within our courts in the United States of America. This, uh, these two verses here, they also uh, can carry the meaning of speaking to a government's inability to solve the problems of oppression. So it can speak to the fact that the government is the source of these things, but it is equally speaks to the fact uh, of the inability of government to solve problems of oppression and injustice and unrighteousness. And so government always thinks, uh, see if you, this bears witness to you at all, government always thinks that the solution is more government. And Solomon recognized that. And Solomon was the head of a government. And he describes the various levels of government that end up being introduced. And uh, when Solomon, when we know the truth of the Bible is, is the real solution to the problems of oppression and perversion and unrighteousness and these things is to point people to God, to nurture and encourage faith in God rather than to do what our country is doing right now, and that is to ridicule faith in God, the God of the Bible. All other gods are, uh, uh, you know, sacrosanct. You can't touch them at all. But it's open game on Christianity and, and the God of the Bible. And so, but a, it's a wise government that recognizes that they cannot fix man's problems and that the best thing that we can do is to nurture faith, not to ridicule it and not to persecute it, not to marginalize it. And as long as our government fails to realize that these problems that we face in our culture at their core are the result of living in disobedience to God, then government will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in an attempt to combat all of the problems of crime and, and other problems as, as well. But they will never succeed because all they'll do is ultimately bankrupt themselves. And that's the path that we're on here in uh, the United States. The idea is every time you remove God 
Uh, you force the population as a whole to live under the sun, independent of God. It corrupts people. It causes us to live like animals. Well, when that happens, what do you have to do? You have to create new laws. Then what do you have to do? You have to enforce those laws. What do you have to do to enforce those laws? You have to increase government and oversight. And on and on it goes until one day you find that a country is spending all of its money on government and trying to manage people and they'll never put it together that the reason that we have created the problems that we are and government has gotten so large and we have so many laws and we're still no better off is because we have taken God out of the consciousness of the population of the nation that we are leading. And so it's the inevitable cycle, nothing new really under the sun. The same mistakes are made over and over again in human history. We are remaking them. Solomon saw them being made in his day. Man will never, ever create a utopia in this world because man has fallen and he's incapable of it. The greatest thing that a government can do is to encourage faith and relationship with God and obedience to God and otherwise it's taking on a job that no government, even if it was the greatest government in the world, can hope to be successful uh, in. Solomon then turns, uh, return to the subject of the vanity of uh, riches. And uh, in uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 10, and it really carries all the way through uh, uh, the end of chapter 6. And he returns to the subject of wealth uh, for the simple reason that uh, this whole thing of the idea of trying to find meaning and purpose in life and the attempt to find it in money, that that ensnares more people with its lies than any other idolatry that exists. And so he begins to talk about uh, the vanity of of uh, trying to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life in money. He says, He who uh, loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. And so riches, he tells us, can never satisfy. Here's the funny thing about covetousness, because covetousness is the ungodly desire for more. It is the worship of material things over God. That's idolatry. Covetousness, the desire for more, that particular uh, thing is probably the most strongly nurtured thing within our culture through commercials and every other kind of way to make us dissatisfied with what we have, to want more, and, and, uh, and then to seek... Uh, riches and the idea that whatever they're trying to sell us or whatever riches that if we just get this or we get this amount of money, then we'll be satisfied. The problem with that is that covetousness is a sin like every other sin. So you take the drug addict or you take the alcoholic or the drunkard and we understand about them and their sin. We recognize that, all right, if they feed that sin, 
that sin just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it not only ultimately dominates their life, but ultimately it destroys their life. But because of the American way, we put covetousness in another category. And so we don't view it as sin. And we think that we can control that and that it won't come to dominate a life and it won't come to destroy a life. But because it is sin, it will do what every other sin does in a person's life. And so it can never, ever uh, satisfy. It's always will produce this feeling of wanting more and more and more and more until it becomes the master passion of our life. And the cure for it, For the Christian, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. To be satisfied with a relationship with God that is deep and meaningful and then to be satisfied with whatever else God chooses to add to my life materially with that relationship, Paul says, that's the person who is rich. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul saying that is a person who is uh, rich, and and so the uh, the importance of of that it is will never satisfy. Verse eleven, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. These are called children. Uh, so what profit have the owners except to see them with their own eyes? So it's not just talking about children, but it's talking about the fact that riches are a great responsibility and riches add complications to people's lives. Everybody, not everybody, but it seems like everybody wants to be rich. And Solomon, who was rich off the graph, said it's a little more complicated than just being uh, rich. And the idea is that the more riches you have, the more people you have to hire to manage those riches. You need financial advisors. You need tax advisors, accountants, lawyers. You've got to hire help to uh, mow the lawn and do all of these other things in the household because the things that you used to do now you can't do because you're managing uh, the riches and, and, it, and it takes all of your time. And all of this hiring of other people, it cuts into your bottom line. So sometimes it looks like, wow, here they are, they're making $3 million a year, $1 million a year, $25 million a year, and uh, yet that's being gouged out in a big way by expenses that are involved with being rich. And you're probably thinking, oh, poor them. But Solomon is trying to help us to see a bigger picture here on uh, all of this. And none of of this takes into account all the new friends you get once you win the lottery or you become rich or all the family members that now you're their favorite uh, cousin or whatever it might be. So being rich is a complicated life, and it's more complicated than most people who desire to be rich uh, realize. Then in verse 12 he says, the labor, of the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. And uh, so you wives, you know very well that. And that head hits the pillow and he's gone. Uh, works hard all day long, can be a woman as well. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, you know, whether he eats a feast at dinner or he eats a simple meal at dinner, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. And so riches, as Solomon uh, speaks about them here, 
the riches mean more worry and they uh, mean uh, can rob us then of our sleep. And so the man who works hard and he just lives simply and uh, oftentimes that kind of a man gets a much better night's sleep than the rich man who is uh, bound up in his money and he's, he's got that much more to worry about. And so the poor man, the laboring man, he has other worries in life or concerns in life, uh, but he's not worried about the stock market and what it's doing and what gold is doing and what the commodity markets are doing every day. Uh, and he goes to bed, and in some cases, ignorance really is uh, bliss. Well, we'll stop there, and uh, right in mid-sentence, literally, but this is the kind of church you're attending. And we'll pick things up in verse 13 and uh, follow this whole stream of thought, uh, Lord willing, next week in order to give us time to uh, satisfactorily enjoy uh, the Lord's Supper uh, this evening.